0: you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn them to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4, we'll be reading the chapter in its entirety. If I had my way and we could cover it all, I would take 4 and 5 together. And hopefully by the time we're done with 4 and 5 after next week, you'll see why I say that. But time doesn't allow. So let me read... Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 11 for you, reminding you, as always, brothers and sisters, that what we're about to hear read is the word of the living God, so let us attend to it as such. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, come up here. And I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with gold crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne and worships Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For You created all things, and by Your will, they existed and were created. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we humbly come now before you to hear from your word, acknowledging that unless you give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, that our time together here will be like casting seeds upon rocky soil. There will be no fruit. And so we pray. For the Holy Spirit to accompany now the proclamation of your word, making it spring forth and sprout in our hearts. Lord, give the increase, we pray, and may you receive the glory for doing so. We ask this in the name of the one who lives forever and ever, the one who was and is and is to come, even the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, one of the most difficult parts of living as a Christian, being a Christian rather, in a fallen world, is that it's very easy for us to lose our perspective, isn't it? It's easy for us to lose our perspective in the midst of a fallen world that from our perspective is nothing but a mess, nothing but chaos. It's very easy for us to lose the perspective that God is working all things for our good and for His glory, isn't it? I mean, if you've been with us as we've gone through the seven letters to the seven churches, you can just look there and see the state that the church is in. Sin, false doctrine, temptation. There is persecution. There is suffering. It just looks like a big chaotic mess. And our lives often look the same way, don't they? Health scare, relational struggles, financial difficulties, you can just go down the list. And it's very hard then to remind yourself and believe God is working all of this for my good and for his glory. And you see, here's the thing. Jesus knows that that's what his people struggle with. He's always known. And so in his great love and mercy, he's given this vision that we have in Revelation chapter 4 to John for the benefit of the church, that they might not lose perspective, that they might have an eternal and heavenly perspective, because what is the vision? The vision is that God is in the heavenly temple on his throne, ruling and reigning over all things. That's the vision that we're given here. And that's the vision that we need so that we don't despair. So that we don't give up. So that we don't believe Satan's lie that it's all up to you. You've got to take care of yourself. God's ways are not going to work out for you. You've got to do what it takes to survive, which means you've got to sin rather than trusting the Lord. And so that's what this vision is intended to do It was intended to do for the original audience as they were suffering, and it's intended for us as well, that we might endure and persevere by God's grace until the very end. And so we're going to look at this vision then with two focuses. First of all, we're going to focus in verses 1 through the first half of verse 8 on the throne that is in heaven. You'll notice in the text just how many times the word throne shows up again and again. It often feels redundant as you're reading it, like, my goodness, how many times is he sitting on the throne? It's an emphasis that we might be encouraged. So we'll look at that first. And then the second focus that we'll look at in this vision is the worship in heaven. Because the one who is seated on the throne, who is at the center of all things, is being worshiped. And that worship, if we understand it aright, will be a great encouragement to us. And again, my hope and prayer is that the Lord would use this vision the way he did initially for the encouragement and refocusing of our perspective so that we would have a heavenly perspective and we would endure until the end. So let's look first then at the first focus, the throne in heaven. Look at verse 1 with me again. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. So John is telling us here, after this I looked. So after what? Well, there's no mystery here. It's after the first vision that he received of the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ walking among his churches and then delivering the seven letters to the seven churches. Now, after that vision, he receives this vision. And I want to highlight that this quote here, this after this, I looked and behold, that line is a direct reference to Daniel chapter 7, verse 6. And the reason I highlight that And we're not going to be able to spend near the amount of time I want to today on this. We're going to look at this because I think it's more appropriate next week as we look at Revelation chapter 5. But the flow, the structure of Revelation chapter 4 and 5 follows and steals and borrows from the structure of the vision that Daniel has in Daniel chapter 7. Where he is in the spirit brought into the heavenly temple and sees the heavenly throne of God. And so what's the significance of that? Why is John borrowing that structure from Daniel? What he is saying, and again, we'll see this more clearly next week, is that John is revealing that Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7 is being fulfilled by Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension and his return. Daniel's vision in Daniel 7 is being fulfilled by the vision that John receives in John chapter 4 and 5. That's the significance that he's showing us here. That's why he follows that structure. But you'll get more excited about that next week as we actually see those connections more clearly. So John looks, and what does he see? He sees, he says, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So the end of chapter 3 of Revelation ends with a closed door, right? The Laodiceans have closed the door and Christ is knocking on it, and now John sees an open door in the heavens. And who's opened this door? Well, who calls himself the door, by the way, in John's gospel? Jesus does. And we know that this is Jesus who's speaking his voice like a trumpet because of what John has already said in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10. Jesus is beckoning him to come up, and he's going to show him what. He's going to show him what must take place after this. Well, what does he mean by that? What he means by that is everything that takes place between Jesus' resurrection an ascension, and then his second coming. Everything that will happen to the church, everything that will be happening in history, that is what John is receiving this vision of. Jesus is giving it to him for the benefit of his church. John goes on to say in verse 2, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. So John, once again, as we saw earlier in chapter 1, is in this ecstatic, prophetic experience where he's, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. Isn't that what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 2? Paul had this experience. Taken up into the third heaven. Why? To what end? So that he can receive this revelation and then deliver it to God's people. This is the experience that Daniel had, that Ezekiel had, That all of the prophets of God had to then deliver this revelation to God's people. And what does John see? Significantly, John sees a throne. Now, why is that significant? It's significant because we're going to see this again and again. Where John is, is he's in the heavenly temple. And so the earthly temple, the earthly tabernacle, you need to understand those aren't the master copies and then the heavenly temple is a copy of that. No, it's the other way around. The earthly tabernacle and temple are a type and shadow of the heavenly temple. And if you know anything about the earthly temple, what was at the very center of the temple? It was the Ark of the Covenant, wasn't it? That was God's earthly throne, as it were. And now we have a picture of what? The heavenly throne of God. And it's not an empty throne, is it? John sees this throne in the heavenly temple of God, and he says what? Someone is sitting on it, ruling and reigning. And who is the one who is sitting on it? Well, we don't have to guess. We know from verse 8, and we know from verse 11 of Revelation chapter 4, that it's God himself. I believe specifically a representation of the Father, more on that in a bit. But what's the symbolism of a throne? The one who sits on the throne is royalty. He has the authority, he has the power to rule and to reign, and as we'll see in a bit, to judge. And so John is shown that even though life is just chaotic down here, in heaven God is ruling and reigning over all things. What's happening inside of the church and outside of the church. So he sees a throne. He sees the one who's sitting on the throne. And then in verse 3, he goes on to describe the glory of the one who is seated on the throne. Look at verse 3 with me. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Now, before I go any further, let me stop and throw out a cautionary flag here so that we're warned properly. We are not to think that these visions that John receives from the Lord Jesus are like photographs of heaven. Okay, it's not like John is snapping a picture of heaven and saying, hey, when you get there, this is what it's going to look like. These aren't photographs. This isn't what you're going to see. Remember, how did John say Jesus deliver this vision to him, this revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ? You can go back and listen to Chad's sermon in Revelation 1.1. It's through symbols. It's through representations. And so we need to understand that John is giving us symbols That represents spiritual realities so that he can communicate that to us in a way that we understand But we're not to imagine that this is what we'll see in heaven. Why because does god sit? Does he actually sit come on you young kids that know the shorter catechism. God doesn't have a body He's spirit. He doesn't have a body like men. So he's not literally sitting in a throne in heaven But john is using these symbols to represent to us spiritual realities That God is ruling and reigning in heaven. And so here, what we're being shown, as best as John can, he's describing for us the glory of God emanating from the throne. And so I don't want to get into all the details. Everybody tries to explain a lot of times, all the commentators... Every little representation, and it starts, they contradict each other, by the way. And you start to lose the forest for the trees. Here's what you need to know. These are precious stones, jasper and carnelian. One's probably clear, one is red. And John says what he sees is light refracting and reflecting off of these precious jewels that are used all the way throughout Scripture, by the way, to describe the glory of God. They were precious stones on the priest's vest or ephod representing the tribes, the 12 tribes, as they would go into the Holy of Holies, representing the people of God in the presence of God. And so John is saying, it's like God who is light, right? I'm beholding his glory. It's like light reflected off of these precious stones. But what I do think is significant as well is that you notice that there's this rainbow, an emerald rainbow Around the throne, it's not just a 180 degree rainbow by the way. It's a 360 degree. It's encircling the entirety of the throne. And the significance of that is important because again John is just borrowing from Old Testament biblical imagery like crazy. So much so that it's killing me that we don't have time to look at all of it. But when I tell you that and then I mention a rainbow, what immediately comes to mind? Okay, the rainbow that God puts in the sky For his Noahic covenant saying, I've destroyed all of mankind and all of the creatures save those that were in the ark that I saved by my grace and mercy. And now I hang up my bow as it were. It's no longer pointing, drawn, though that's what you deserve. I've now hung it up. And now what you will know is grace and mercy. So this is showing us God's covenant grace and mercy towards his people. That though He is majestic and terrifying in His glory and in His judgment, as we'll see in just a little bit, towards His people, His throne is encircled in covenant grace and love and mercy. And how has He ultimately shown us that covenant grace and love and mercy? Through the giving of His Son. The life, death, burial, resurrection and ascension and intercession and return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I think that's extremely important significant here now having described the throne and the glory of god as he sits on the throne john now goes on to describe what's around the throne so he sort of pans out a little bit and everything by the way almost in concentric circles the way he describes it to us is centered on the throne but here's what he says in verse 4 around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. So what is the symbolism here? What is John seeing? Here's what I think he's seeing. I think he's seeing 24 angelic beings. This isn't outside of the realm of possibility. All throughout the Old Testament, we see again and again, myriads upon myriads of angels attending to the Lord. And so I think you have these heavenly beings, these angels sitting on thrones. Now, beyond that... I think they represent and symbolize the entirety of the people of God. Now, why do I say that? Well, the the number 24 is significant, first of all, because if you take 24 and divide it by two, what do you have? You have 12. And when I say the number 12, and you think of Old Testament imagery, you think of the 12 tribes of Israel, right? And then if I say 12 in the New Testament, you think, oh, well, the 12 apostles. And so what is being represented here is the entirety of the people of God, Old Covenant, and New Covenant. Now beyond that, I think what's persuasive as well is how are they described? Well, they're sitting on thrones, they're dressed in white clothes, and they've got crowns. Hmm. We've just gone through the seven letters to the seven churches. Dig back in your memory bank there and go, oh, you know what? These were all rewards that Jesus promised to those who conquered and endured by his grace until the end. And so now, what do we have? We have the glorified saints having received that which Jesus promised them. You conquer, you'll rule and reign with me. You endure till the end, I'll give you the victor's crown. You endure through the suffering and persecution, not even loving your own life unto death, and I will give you pure white garments. And so we have the 24 elders, these angelic beings, representing The entirety of the people of God. Now just stop and think about what an encouragement. This should be an encouragement to us as well. What an encouragement this would be to those persecuted Christians who originally received this vision. Many who had friends, brothers and sisters in Christ who were martyred. And they're catching a glimpse of them worshiping what awaits them. Worshiping their Lord and Savior for all eternity. Beholding his glory, ruling and reigning, having received all that Jesus promised they would receive by his grace. What an encouragement. And that's to be an encouragement for us as well, brothers and sisters. This is what awaits us, worshiping the Lord before his throne. Now, in verse 5, John sort of goes back after focusing to what's around the throne, back to some activity at the throne. Focuses back there. So look at verse 5. He says, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, this language is fascinating because it's a direct quotation from Exodus chapter 19, verse 6. When Moses is up on Mount Sinai receiving the law, And he sees this and the people see this, right? What's happening? There's this thunder, there's this lightning, there's all of this fire, and they're just terrified, right? Well, what is this communicating? It's communicating the judgment of God. The judgment that he brought upon the Egyptians for persecuting mercilessly the people of God. And so what does God do? He hears their cries and he comes and he wipes them out. He brings plagues upon them. He judges them and delivers his people. And so God sits on the throne as a judge. And this is meant to be an encouragement to the Christians as they're being persecuted and suffering themselves. It's a reminder that if God didn't forget his old covenant saints and his promises to them, he will not forget you, O oh people of God. But he will come and he will judge and he will destroy your enemies, and so you can rest and trust in that, that he rules and reigns to that end. Also notice, though, he mentions something else interesting before the throne. Look at the second half of verse 5. Before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, this imagery has already come up in the book of Revelation, and it's, again, a direct citation. I can't remember if we had mentioned this yet or not, But this is a direct reference to Zechariah's vision that he has of the temple of God in Zechariah 4 verses 2 through 6. And he gives the interpretation that those seven torches are the Holy Spirit. So what do we have then? We have a representation of the Father as the one sitting on the throne. We have a representation of the Holy Spirit as the seven torches here. And then who's the lamb that is slain from the foundations of the earth? We have the Son. So we have the entire Trinity represented. We have to be careful with that imagery, obviously, but there it is. Now, John continues his description of the throne room scene in the first half of verse 6. So look there with me. He says, and before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Now, I'm going to be completely honest with you. I've been completely honest with you the whole time, so maybe I shouldn't say that. I don't know. I've been lying up to this point. I don't know what this represents exactly. I think it's likely a multi-layered symbolism. Here's what we do know. Again, if this is the heavenly temple, what do we know about the earthly temple? Remember that bronze basin that was there? So that the priests could clean their hands and their feet and certain ceremonial tools could be cleansed before they're brought into the temple. That's what this is in the heavenly version of it. So... What some interpretators have said, and I think there's a layering here of the symbolism, they said, well, it's baptism. That's what a lot of the early church commentators said. It's baptism, right? Because we're washed, pure, so that we can come before the throne of God. Others say, throughout history, it's the blood of Christ. It's through the blood of Christ that we're cleansed so that we can approach the throne of God. And then some have said, well, what does the sea represent? Because, right, it's a sea of glass, like crystal. Well, what does the sea represent all throughout the Old Testament and into the book of Revelation? Where does the beast come from? He comes from the sea. Where does Leviathan live? He lives in the sea. Where does the beast come from in Revelation? From the sea. The sea is this representation of wickedness and evil. And so they say the significance then of it being like a crystal, still, is that before the throne of God, all evil and wickedness is under his authority. And so it's as if it's calm. It's at rest because under his power. And so I'm not going to pick one of them. I think it's multi-layered. It could be any one of those. You got a a position? Feel free to share it with me afterwards. But I think the significance of the bronze basin is significant as well. Next, John sees in the second half of verse 6 through to verse 8, he sees four living creatures. So let's read the rest of verse 6, and then the first half of verse 8. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And then we'll stop there because then we'll jump into the hymn that they actually sing. So what in the world? This seems pretty bizarre. What is this symbolizing? What is this representing? Well, I just want to point out, first of all, that John is relying heavily here. We see, by the way, that this is represented to us that John was steeped in the Old Testament scriptures because when he's trying to describe for us this vision that he receives, he's so reliant on Old Testament language to do so. And here he's pulling from Ezekiel chapter 1 and Ezekiel chapter 10. There's some differences in the way that the four living creatures are described. But here's what I think the four living creatures represent. I think they represent, they're again, angelic beings, servants of the Lord, serving him. But they represent or symbolize all of creation. All of creation is surrounding God and Worshiping God. And the fact that they have these six wings, in Ezekiel's vision they have four. Here they have six wings, and what this is symbolizing is that they are quick, ready to do whatever God's bidding is. The way you move quickly now is we fly in a plane. Well, they didn't have flight back then through that means. You would fly. And so they're flying to do God's bidding. And they're covered with eyes because they see all that God does in all of creation and they do his bidding. And so. Here are these four living creatures, these angelic beings that represent all of creation. And so do you see what John is telling us here? He's saying that the church, represented by the 24 angelic beings, these elders, and all creation, represented by the four living creatures, are all centered on what? On the throne of God. God is the center of all things. And John starts us here at the throne In chapter 4, because everything else that proceeds in the rest of the book proceeds from where? From the throne. All of God's glorious care for his people and for creation issues forth from his throne. All his judgments against the enemies of his people issue forth from the throne. God rules and reigns and judges from his throne. And you see the pastoral import of this, right? For suffering Christians whose world seemed utterly chaotic, they needed to know that God would judge their enemies and that He would sovereignly care for them. And brothers and sisters, we desperately need to hear that as well, don't we? No matter how bad and chaotic things may seem down here, guess who's still sitting on the throne? Ruling and reigning and judging God is and that is where we must rest our head every hour of every day or we will know no rest so that's the first aspect or focus of the vision here it's on the throne in heaven second of all we see the worship in heaven and what we're going to hear are two hymns that the four living creatures sing and that the 24 elders sing and those really interpret the vision's for us. That's the role of these hymns. So let's look at the first hymn that we hear sung by the four living creatures in verse 8. The second half of verse 8 rather. And day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Now knowing how heavily John relies on the Old Testament, did your mind immediately go to a passage? Isaiah chapter 6? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Isaiah 6 is different though because what did the seraphim say there? They say the whole earth is filled with his glory. Here the four living creatures, the angelic beings are saying who was and is and is to come. And that's significant because what's being highlighted here is the fact that God is going to come again in judgment through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? All judgment has been given to the Son. The Father's given it to the son and he is going to come and judge but they're singing his praises saying god you are holy thrice holy you are lord god almighty you're all powerful and you're eternal who was and is and is to come you're coming back again to judge so they're always singing the four living creatures this song and then what happens in response well in response to their singing the 24 elders the angelic beings representing all the people of God throughout the ages, they fall down and they worship. Listen to what John says in verses 9 through 11. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever. Forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne. Saying worthy are you. Our Lord and God. To receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And by your will. They existed. And were created. You see what's happening here. The 24 elders are falling down. Because they're again. As the people of God acknowledging. Lord all that we have. We have by your grace. The reason that we sit in these thrones. It's because you empowered us by your grace to endure until the end. We conquered because of your grace. And then it's as if you give us that grace and then you reward that grace. It's grace upon grace. And so we know that our authority to rule and reign on these thrones, it doesn't come from us. It comes from you. And so we give you glory and honor and praise. It's a symbolism of why they take off their crowns and throw them at the feet of Of the one who sits on the throne. You've given us all that we have. What do we have that we didn't receive? And so Lord you receive all glory and honor and praise. They're submitting and humbling themselves to him. And what are they praising him for? They're saying you're worthy to receive glory and honor and power. Because you created all things. We know this from the light of nature. We also know this because we were going through the book of Genesis, don't we? God creates everything by the word of his power, everything out of nothing, and purely as an act of his will, they exist and were created, and he sustains them. And what we see as he's sitting on the throne is that he's working all things to his own appointed ends, his glory. And so they're worshiping him. And what a contrast for the original audience. What a contrast for us, brothers and sisters! As we live in this fallen world, it just looks like a mess, doesn't it? just looks like utter chaos. And in this vision, we're transported with John up to the third heaven into the very heavenly temple, the throne room of God. And what's happening? Is God affected by the chaos and the mess down here? Not at all. He's ruling and reigning and being worshipped by all creation, by all of the saints. Glory, honor, power, Lord, worthy are you. You see, man is now participating in what he was created to participate in. What he lost in the fall has been restored to him. Fellowship and communion with God and creation is no longer marred there. But it's worshiping and submitting to God. This is the glorious vision That we receive. And brothers and sisters, this is the glorious vision that we need so that we don't lose perspective. That at the center of all things is God on his throne, ruling and reigning and being worshiped for who he is and what he has done and what he is doing and will do in creation. And so, brothers and sisters, let us understand that as we worship down here, We're participating in that heavenly worship. And that's what awaits us for all eternity. And that puts everything else into perspective. No matter what the sufferings or trials or temptations, God is sitting on His throne. Let me pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, We thank you for the encouragement that this vision is that you gave to John for our benefit. We pray that we would be about worshiping you and understand that that worship, beholding your glory, is how we are transformed from one degree of glory to the next. Until that great day when the heavenly temple comes down and the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and then he will reign forever and ever. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray, and keep us faithful in the meantime. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.